Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovelies. I hope you're ready for a jam-packed episode. We've got the finale of Horror Horn, part two, a tale about monstrous humanoids bent on lust and perhaps the taste of man. And your second tale is from a new Old Time Radio episode, a slight contradiction, that I've remastered called Casey Crime Photographer, The Red Raincoat. This series is definitely a lot trickier than the usual OTR, so there may be a little bit more worse for wear here, despite my special tender care when it comes to cleaning up the audio. But as always, it's worth it. And you're worth it. Now, mates, I have my Hobart black tea in hand, ready to drink. Now turn your lights off and the sound up, and join me for a duo of unique tales. Enjoy. The music of the small band was over before he had finished the narrative, and the chattering groups round the tea table had dispersed. He paused a moment. There was a horror of the spirit, he said, which I experienced then, from which I verily believe I have never entirely recovered. I saw then how terrible a living thing could be, and how terrible... In consequence was life itself. In us all, I suppose, lurks some inherited germ of that ineffable bestiality, and who knows whether, sterile as it has apparently become in the course of centuries, it might not fructify again. When I saw that creature sun itself, I looked into the abyss out of which ye have crawled, and these creatures are trying to crawl out of it now if they exist any longer. Certainly, for the last twenty years, there has been no record of their being seen, until we come to this story, of the footprints seen by the climbers of Everest. If that is authentic, if the party did not mistake the footprint of some bear, or what not, for a human tread, it seems as if still this stranded remnant of mankind is in existence. Now, Ingram had told his story well, but sitting in this warm and civilized room, the horror which he had clearly felt had not communicated itself to me in any very vivid manner. Intellectually, I agreed. I could appreciate his horror, but certainly my spirit felt no shudder of interior comprehension. But it is odd. I said, that your keen interest in physiology did not disperse your qualms. You were looking, so I take it, at some form of man more remote probably than the earliest human remains. Did not something inside you say, this is of absorbing significance? He shook his head. No, I only wanted to get away, said he. It was not as I have told you. The terror of what, according to Chanton's story, might await us if we were captured. It was sheer horror at the creature itself. I quaked at it. 
The snowstorm and the gale increased in violence that night, and I slept uneasily. Plucked again and again from my slumber by the fierce battling of the wind that shook my windows as if with an imperious demand for admittance. It came in billowy gusts, with strange noises intermingled, with it as for a moment it abated, with flutings and moanings that rose to shrieks as the fury of it returned. These noises, no doubt, mingled themselves with my drowsed and sleepy consciousness, and once I tore myself out of the nightmare, imagining that the creatures of the horror horn had gained footing of my balcony and were rattling at the window bolts. But before morning the gale had died away, and I awoke to see the snow falling dense and fast in the windless air. For three days it continued, without intermission, and with its cessation there came a frost such as I have never felt before. Fifty degrees were registered one night, and more the next. And what the cold must have been on the cliffs of the Ungerhirhorn, I cannot imagine. Sufficient, so I thought, to have made an end altogether of its secret inhabitants. My cousin, on that day twenty years ago, had missed an opportunity for study which would probably never fall again either to him or another. I received one morning a letter from a friend saying that he had arrived at the neighbouring winter resort of St. Luigi, and proposing that I should come over for a morning skating and lunch afterwards. The place was not more than a couple of miles off. If one took the path over the low, pine-clad foothills above, which lay the steep woods below the first rocky slopes of the Ungihirhorn, and accordingly, with a knapsack containing skates on my back, I went on skis over the wooded slopes, and down by an easy descent again onto St. Luigi. The day was overcast, clouds entirely obscured the higher peaks, though the sun was visible, pale and unluminous through the mists. But as the morning went on, it gained the upper hand, and I slid down into St. Luigi beneath a sparkling firmament. We skated and lunched, and then, since it looked as if thick weather was coming up again, I set out early about three o'clock for my return journey. Hardly had I gotten into the woods when the clouds gathered thick above, and streamers and skeins of them began to descend among the pines through which my path threaded its way. In ten minutes more, their opacity had so increased that I could hardly see a couple of yards in front of me. Very soon I became aware that I must have gotten off the path, for snow-cowled shrubs lay directly in my way, and casting back to find it again, I got altogether confused as to direction. Though progress was difficult, I knew I had only to keep on the ascent, and presently I should come to the brow of these low foothills and descend into the open valley where Alhubal stood. So I went on, stumbling and sliding over obstacles and unable, owing to the thickness of the snow, to take off my skis. For I should have sunk over the knees at each step. Still, the ascent continued, and looking at my watch I saw that I had already been near an hour on my way around from St. Luigi, a period more than sufficient to complete my whole journey. But still, I stuck to my idea that though I had certainly strayed far from my proper route, 
a few minutes more must surely see me over the top of the upward way, and I should find the ground declining into the next valley. About now, too, I noticed that the mists were growing suffused with rose colour, and though the inference was that it must be close on sunset, there was consolation in the fact that they were there and might lift at any moment and disclose to me my whereabouts. But the fact that night would soon be on me made it needful to bar my mind against that despair of loneliness which so eats out the heart of a man who is lost in the woods or on mountainside, that though still there is plenty of vigour in my limbs, his nervous force is sapped, and he can do no more than lie down and abandon himself to whatever fate may await him. And then, I heard that which made the thought of loneliness seem bliss indeed, for there was a worse fate than loneliness. What I heard resembled the howl of a wolf, and it came from not far in front of me, where the ridge, was it a ridge? Still rose higher in vestment of pines. From behind me came a sudden puff of wind, which shook the frozen snow from the drooping pine branches and swept away the mists as a broom sweeps the dust from the floor. Radiant above me were the unclouded skies, already charged with the red of the sunset, and in front I saw that I had come to the very edge of the wood through which I had wandered so long. But it was no valley into which I had penetrated, for there, right ahead of me, rose the steep slope of boulders and rocks soaring upwards to the root of the Ungeherehorn. What, then, was that cry of a wolf which had made my heart stand still. I saw. Not twenty yards from me was a fallen tree, and leaning against the trunk of it was one of the denizens of the horror horn, and it was a woman. She was enveloped in a thick growth of hair, grey and tuft, and from her head it streamed down over her shoulders and her bosom, from which hung withered and pendulous breasts. And looking on her face, I comprehended not with my mind alone, but with a shudder of my spirit. What Ingram had felt. Never had a nightmare fashioned so terrible a countenance, the beauty of sun and stars, and of the beasts of the field, and the kindly race of men, could not atone for so hellish an incarnation of the spirit of life. A fathomless bestiality modelled the slavering mouth and the narrow eyes. I looked into the abyss itself and knew that out of that abyss on the edge of which I leaned, the generations of men had climbed. What if that ledge crumbled in front of me and pitched me headlong into its nethermost depths? In one hand, she held by the horns a cameos that kicked and struggled. A blow from its hind leg caught her withered thigh, and with a grunt of anger, she seized the leg in the other hand and, as a man may pull from its sheath a stem meadow grass, she plucked it off the body, leaving the torn skin hanging around the gaping wound. Then putting the red bleeding member to her mouth, she sucked at it as a child sucks a stick of sweet meat. Through flesh and gristle, her short brown teeth penetrated 
as she licked her lips with a sound of purring. Then dropping the leg by her side, she looked again at the body of the prey now quivering in its death convulsion, and with finger and thumb gouged out one of its eyes. She snapped her teeth on it, and it cracked like a soft shell nut. In some indescribable catalepsy of terror, while through my brain there pealed the panic command of my mind to my stricken limbs. Be gone. Be gone while there is still time. Then recovering the power of my joints and muscles, I tried to slip behind the tree and hide myself from its apparition. But the woman, shall I say, must have caught my stir of movement, for she raised her eyes from her living feast and saw me. She craned towards her neck. She dropped her prey and half rising began to move towards me. As she did this, she opened her mouth and gave forth a howl such as I heard a moment before. It was answered by another, but faintly and distantly, sliding and slipping with the toes of my skis tripping in the obstacles below the snow. I plunged forward down the hill between the pine trunks, the low sun already sinking behind some rampart of mountain in the west, reddened the snow and the pines with his ultimate rays. My knapsack with the skates in it swung to and fro on my back. One ski stick had already been twitched out of my hand by a fallen branch of pine, but not a second's pause could I allow myself to recover it. I gave no glance behind, and I knew not at what pace my pursuer was on my track or indeed were there any pursuit at all. For my whole mind and energy now, working at full power again under the stress of my panic, was devoted to getting away down the hill and out of the woods as swiftly as my limbs could bear me. For a little while I heard nothing but the hissing snow of my headlong passage and the rustle of the covered undergrowth beneath my feet and then from close at hand behind me, once more the wolf howl sounded and I heard the plunging of footsteps other than my own. The strap of my knapsack had shifted and as my skate swung to and fro on my back, it chafed and pressed on my throat, hindering free passage of air of which, God knew, my laboring lungs were in dire need. And without pausing, I slipped it free from my neck and held it in the hand from which my ski stick had been jerked. I seemed to go a little more easily for this adjustment, and now, not so far distant, I could see below me the path from which I had strayed. If only I could reach that, the smoother going would surely enable me to outdistance my pursuer, who, even on the rougher ground, was but slowly overhauling me, and at the sight of that ribbon stretching unimpeded downhill, a ray of hope pierced the black panic of my soul. With that came the desire, keen and insistent, to see who or what it was that was on my tracks, and I spared a backward glance. It was she, the hag whom I had seen at her gruesome meal. Her long grey hair flew out behind her. Her mouth chattered and gibbered. Her fingers made grabbing movements, as if already they closed on me. But the path was now at hand, and the nearness of it, I suppose, made me incautious. A hump of snow-covered bush lay in my path, and, thinking I could jump over it, I tripped and fell, smothering myself in snow. I heard a maniac noise, half scream, half laugh, from close behind, and before I could recover myself, the grabbing fingers were at my neck. 
as if a steel vice had closed there. But my right hand in which I held my knapsack off skates was free, and with a blind backhand movement, I whirled it behind me at full length of a strap, and knew that my desperate blow had found its billet somewhere. Even before I could look around, I felt the grip on my neck relax, and something subsided into the very bush which had entangled me. I recovered my feet and turned. There she lay, twitching and quivering, the heel of one of my skates piercing the thin alpaca of the knapsack had hit her full on the temple, from which the blood was pouring. But a hundred yards away, I could see another such figure coming downwards on my tracks, leaping and bounding. At that, panic rose again within me, and I sped off down the white smooth path that led to the lights of the village already beckoning. Never once did I pause in my headlong going, there was no safety until I was back amongst the haunts of men. I flung myself against the door of the hotel and screamed for admittance, though I had but to turn the handle and enter, and once more, as when Ingram had told his tale, there was the sound of the band and the chatter of voices, and there too was he himself, who looked up and then rose swiftly to his feet as I made my clattering entrance. I've seen them too! I cried. Look at my knapsack, is there no blood on it? It is the blood of one of them, a woman, a, a hag, who tore off the leg of a chaos as I looked and pursued me through the accursed wood, I... Whether it was I who spun around, or the room which seemed to spin round me, I knew not, but I heard myself falling, collapse on the floor, and the next time that I was conscious at all, I was in bed. There was Ingram there, who told me that I was quite safe, and another man, a stranger, who pricked my arm with the nozzle of a syringe and reassured me. A day or two later, I gave a coherent account of my adventure, and three or four men armed with guns went over my traces. They found the bush in which I had stumbled, with a pool of blood which had soaked into the snow, and still following my ski tracks, they came on the body of a camios, from which had been torn one of its hind legs and one eye socket was empty. That is all the corroboration of my story that I can give the reader. And for myself, I imagine that the creature which pursued me was either not killed by my blow or that her fellows removed her body. Anyhow, it is open to the incredulous to prowl about the caves of Ungahirahorn and see if anything occurs that may convince them. Well, Casey, how are you coming along with that crossword puzzle? I'm stuck, Ethelbert, for a seven-letter name beginning with H, and it's a place in Ohio. That's a tough one, Casey. Ah, not for me, boys, not for me. Hi, Tony. Hi, fellas. Yes, sir, the word you're looking for is Hocking. H-O-C-K-I-N-G. The Hocking Valley. Hey, that's it. Hey, I get it. Anchor Hocking. Oh, you said it, Casey. Anchor Hocking, the world's largest makers of household glass. 
Crime Photographer, brought to you by Fire King Oven Glass. Anchor glass containers, anchor caps and closures. All products of Anchor Hawking, a great name in glass. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tony Marvin. Every week at this time, the Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation brings you another adventure of Casey, crime photographer, ace cameraman who covers the crime news of a great city. Written by Alonzo Dean Cole, our adventure for tonight, The Red Raincoat. Night, about 9.30. Rain. Hard, pelting rain that has driven people indoors and left the streets deserted. At the corner, a bus stop. A woman alights from it. She wears a red hooded raincoat that covers her head and most of her face. She turns into a side street lined with cheap walk-up apartment houses. Midway of the block, she's about to pass the entrance to an alley when, from its darkness, there's a gunshot. Then another, another. The woman falls. On the street, brakes are hastily applied to a cruising taxi. As it comes to a skidding halt, the driver... Police! 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 Hey, Copper! I heard shots. Where? From that alley, I think. I didn't see no one. Well, this stain got it in the back. Three bullet holes. Stay here, fella. Don't let anybody touch her. I'm going to look in that alley. Get back, you people! Get back! This ain't a free show. There's been a murder here. Put your back, Paletti. I'll have room to shoot a pick. I'm doing the best I can, Casey. Move, you folks. Move. That's better. There's one for page one. Well, that'll be all, Casey. Well, look who's finally got here. My old pal, Logan. How often do I have to tell you that no press pictures are to be taken at the scene of a homicide until after the police photographers get through? I've got a rotten memory, haven't I, Sean? By rights, I ought to take that camera away from you. Oh, no, you wouldn't do that to me, not with all these people looking up. Oh, no. You cops, push this mob back. Clear the block so we'll have room to move around. Sergeant. Yes, Captain. Tell me what happened to you. I can tell you that, Logan. Huh? A cab driver, that little guy over there, heard three shots fired from the alley here and saw this gal in the red raincoat fold up on the sidewalk. Huh? A uniformed cop, this guy right here, heard the shots too, searched the alley and found nothing. Well, all the rest is up to you. What does Doc's report show, Sergeant? He said the woman was killed instantly, Captain. One of those bullet holes is in line with the heart. Of course, you can't be sure it followed that line through a body until she's turned over. Now, don't do that when I check men you through. No, sir. Anyone find out who the woman is? Not yet, sir. When we can go through her pockets, we'll probably find something that... Ann Williams is circulating through that crowd, Logan. Trying to locate someone who might know... Say, here she comes now with a fat face. Hello, Miss Williams. Uh, Casey, this lady thinks she recognizes the dead woman. Well, that's swell, Andy. If you can identify her, lady, your picture will be in the paper. Well, I happen to be in charge here. Oh, excuse us. Well, who do you think the dead woman is, lady? Well, as I was just telling this young newspaper woman officer, I can't be sure because the poor thing is lying on her face. But I'm almost positive that's the body of Nora Gellhorn. Because she had a red raincoat exactly like that. <laughs> She's the only woman in this neighborhood who'd wear anything so flashy. And I've got a notion that a certain person wanted her out of the way. Huh? What do you mean by that? Well, her husband, officer, has been carrying on something disgraceful with another woman. Mrs. Gellhorn told me that herself. And she's lucky to say 
ought to let a man divorce her just because he happened to fall in love with somebody else. So I think... That her husband shot her? Oh, I know it's an awful thing to say, mister, but from the goings-on I've heard about it, I think he's been planning to put her out of the way for a long time. As I was saying to my eldest daughter, Eloise, only last uh, night... Where do these gelhorns live? Oh, uh, over there in the corner building on this side of the street. That's number 371, apartment 4C. I live in the apartment house next door. I'm Mrs. Patch. It's Zyda Patch. I said to my eldest daughter only last uh, night... Excuse me, Mrs. Her... Patch. Who's the other woman in this case? The one you say gelhorns been carrying on with? Oh, her name's Randall, Emma Randall. She and her husband live in the same building as the Gellhorns. Their apartment's directly across from mine. Hey, wait a minute. This Emma Randall has a husband? Yeah, poor man. Hey, you know, he stands in the way of Ferris Gellhorn's plans, too, so if you policemen don't act fast and put that murderer behind bars... You'll act fast, Mrs. Patch, if a checkup shows that your story... Oh, okay. you're fine. All right. I'm not the only person in this block who's been expecting a thing like this to happen. Captain Logan. Yes, yeah, Sergeant? Photographers and tech men are finished. You can examine the body now. Come on, Mrs. Patch. I want you to make your identification positive. Oh, I hate to look at the poor thing. Oh, well, Captain, I know my duty. Will you turn the body over, Doctor, so we can see the face? Okay. Hmm. Wasn't a bad-looking gal, then. Nope. Kind of pretty. Oh. Oh. Well, what's the matter, Mrs. Patch? Wait. That isn't Nora Delhorn. It isn't. No, it's Emma Randall. The woman you said Gellhorn was in love with? Yeah, but that's Nora Gellhorn's raincoat. I'm sure of it now that I see it close. Uh, since Mrs. Gellhorn isn't inside of it, you'll have to revise your theory. I guess you don't think Gellhorn would shoot the woman he's in love with. No, no, he was crazy about Mrs. Randall. He wouldn't shoot her. Uh, too bad, Logan. For a few minutes it looked as though you had a sweet suspect in a case that was half sewed up. Well, it may still be that way. Mrs. Patch, what kind of a guy is Randall, this dead woman's husband? Well, he's a nice, quiet kind of guy. Quiet kind, huh? Do you know about his wife and Gellhorn? Oh, he must have. Everybody knew. He sounds like the answer, Casey. This guy Randall stood all he could, then waited for his wife tonight and paid her off. James Randall wouldn't do that. He couldn't have done it. I'm afraid that's something you can't be sure of, lady. But I am sure. Mr. Randall hasn't been outside of his apartment since early this evening. He was inside it when I heard shooting down here on the street. How do you know he was inside? Well, his living room window was just across the court from mine. One of his shades was up a few inches, and I saw him over there, lying on the couch. You saw him? Well, just by accident, of course. I never spy on my neighbors. Uh, well, that's that, Logan. Yeah. But there's another possible angle. What? That red raincoat. Mistaken identity. Kelhorn may have thought he was shooting his wife. That's it, Annie. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Mrs. Patch, you're sure this is Mrs. Gellhorn's raincoat? Oh, I'm positive. I recognize it by those peculiar buttons on that little mended place on the right shoulder. Well, have you any idea why Mrs. Randall should have been wearing it? Well, I suppose Nora Gellhorn lent it to her. Were they enemies? Well, not outwardly. Like most jealous women, they may believe they were friends. Would have made things kind of difficult if they didn't, seeing as they not only lived in the same house, but worked in the same restaurant. Uh, worked in the same yeah, restaurant? Yeah, Harley's Grill. They're both waitresses there. You know if Mrs. Gellhorn or her husband are home now? No, I don't. Their windows aren't on my side of the house. That's too bad. Let's find out for ourselves, Logan. We will, Casey. Sergeant, take charge here. Yes, sir. Have Martin take Mrs. Patch down to headquarters and get a complete deposition from her. Oh, I'd much rather go with you, Captain. Uh, you and the Captain can get together later, Mrs. Patch. But I'll shoot that picture of you now. For the paper, Mrs. Patch? Uh, the best paper in town. Oh, goodness, I look just a fright in this old coat. On account of rain, I didn't well, get... fine to... clothes on you would only gild the lily. Oh, Mr. Casey. Uh, 
Now, just stand just as you are. Hold that bewitching smile. <laughs> that does it. You want to take another? If he does, he's staying here without me. Come on, Miss Williams. Okay. I'll take more shots of you later, Mrs. Pat. Coming, Logan. <laughs> With prices mounting everywhere, here's a fact that's worth noting. Right now, on the shelves and counters of your favorite chain, Variety Hardware and Department Stores, you will find a wide variety of pale blue Fire King oven glass dishes at prices far lower than you would have paid for any baking dish a few years ago. And each piece of Fire King oven glass, regardless of price, is guaranteed for two years against oven breakage. Now is a good time to replace your worn-out kitchen utensils with new and beautiful, easy-to-clean and easy-to-keep-clean Fire King Oven Glass. Remember that Fire King Oven Glass is not only a sturdy, dependable friend in the kitchen, it is also an adornment to your table. Fire King Oven Glass is a product of Anchor Hawking. A great name in glass. Try to pull yourself together, Mr. Randall. I'm sorry we had to bring you such rotten news. And my wife. Dead. Tough fella. Please let me go to her. I got a shirt. Uh, not, not later, pal. Yeah, but she's lying down there in the street, you say, in the rain. They'll have taken her away by now, Mr. Randall. You can go to her when you get a little more used to the idea of what you'll have to see. Oh, maybe. Maybe that'll be better. Who killed her, Captain? Who shot my wife? Well, we hope you may be able to help us find that out. I don't know. I, I can't help you. <clears throat> Before we came to you, we stopped at the Gellhorn apartment. Nobody was home. Why'd you stop there? Well, we want to meet Mr. Gellhorn, especially. He a friend of yours? He's a neighbor. I see. You, uh, you've been talking to people, Captain. Someone's been telling you things. Oh, frankly, yes. Randall, do you think... No. Ferris Gellhorn would be the last man in the world who would kill my wife. That wasn't the question I meant to ask you. You think he's the sort who would kill his own wife? I... I don't know. Now, when you let us in here, Mr. Randall, you said you'd been asleep. Yeah, I... I was tired and I came home from work and I lay down on the couch there. Well, what time was that? It was around half past six, Mr. Casey. I slept until your knock at the door woke me up. Uh. It was plenty of daylight when you fell asleep, around half past six, Mr. Randall. Why did you turn the electric lights on then? The lights? Yeah. We saw a crack of light under the door before we knocked and woke you up. Well, you see, when my wife is... was working late, Mr. Casey, I always turned the light on for her if I was going out or going to sleep. You see, she... she headed to come home to... Dark apartment. Will you keep your big mouth shut, Casey, and let me handle this? It was a question we wanted answered, wasn't it? I'd have asked the question, and I'll check on the answer. You attend to your job and let me attend to mine. Okay, I'll take some pictures. No? Morning Express readers will want to know what the dead woman's apartment looks like. That'll be a good shot of this living room. Now I'll get rid of the bedroom. Yeah. Mr. Randall, you must try to pull yourself together. You, you just must. Yeah. I'll, I'll do my best, Miss Williams. Uh, <clears throat> how, uh, how long had you been married, Randall? Eight years. And when did you and your wife meet the Gellhorns? Well, about two years ago, Captain. What sort of a teller is Gellhorn? I hate the guys inside. He's a lousy wolf and a double-crosser. But if you suspect him of her murder, I know you're wrong. He wanted her to live. He didn't want her dead. 
This man sounds like a square shooter, Captain. Yeah, he does, Miss Wiggins. Check me down on that, too. Uh, so you're back again, Kitchen. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to miss anything. Who's there? Valetti, Captain. Uh, come in. We found Mrs. Gellhorn. Oh, is this... I'm Nora Gellhorn, Captain. This officer came to the restaurant for me. He told me why. Uh, sit down, Mrs. Gellhorn. I've got to ask you some questions. Just a minute, please. Jim. Yeah, Nora. You know I didn't like your wife. I had plenty of reason not to, but... Now, I'm very sorry for you. Thank you. Now, Captain, what did you want to know? Well, first, Mrs. Gellhorn, did you lend Mrs. Randall the raincoat she wore tonight? Yes, I did. It was pouring when she got through work, and she didn't even have an umbrella with her. I was working late tonight in another girl's place, and I figured the rain had stopped by the time I finished, so I said take my coat. And you remained at the restaurant after Mrs. Randall left there, Mrs. Gellhorn? Yes, I did. I checked, and Mrs. Gellhorn was in the restaurant when Mrs. Randall was shot, Captain. Okay, Pauletti. Mrs. Gellhorn. Yes? You said you worked late tonight in another girl's place? That's right. Do you usually come home at the same time as Mrs. Randall? Usually. Did your husband expect you at the usual time tonight? I guess so. I didn't bother to tell him. He doesn't care when I come home or if I come home. That looks like the payoff, Casey. Yeah. Uh, you know where your husband is tonight, Mrs. Gellhorn? Told me he was going to the movie. What theater? I don't know. You might find him at any of the neighborhood theaters. Except the Fourth Avenue. He went there last night to see Lost Holiday. We'll pick him up. Sergeant Flanagan's posted guys at all the theaters around here, Captain. And that Mrs. Patch gave us a first-class description of Gellhorn. Oh, Mrs. Patch is the one who's been telling you cops things. She told us nothing that you and Mr. Randall haven't verified, Mrs. Gellhorn. Oh, all right, then. My husband has been two-timing both me and Jim Randall here. But if you've got an idea that he killed Emma, you're wrong. I told him that, Nora. Well, Mrs. Gellhorn, you think he'd have liked you out of the way and uh, Randall here, so he and Mrs. Randall would be free to get married? Well, well, sure he'd have liked that, but I know that he wouldn't. Come in. We've got Gellhorn, sir. I'm all ready for him, Sergeant. He's downstairs. You want him brought up here? Yeah. Uh, wait a minute. He hasn't been told anything. Oh, not a word, sir. Where'd you get it? Coming out of the Fourth Avenue Theater. Fourth Avenue? He said he'd seen the show there, Mrs. Gellhorn. Well, I thought he had last night. I can't understand. I can. Uh, go into that bedroom, Mrs. Gellhorn. Into the bedroom? Uh, for just a few minutes. Close the door and don't come out till I call you. Then come out quick. All right, I'll do it, but I, I don't... Okay, Sergeant. Have Gellhorn brought up. Yes, sir. The captain will see him up here, Pete. Come on. The old surprise treatment for Gellhorn, Logan. Yeah. His reaction when he sees his wife alive is all I need now. Certainly looks as though... Everything fits. Even the theater where they picked him up. He'd seen the picture there, so he could describe every part of it that was shown while he was waiting in that alley. He went there after the shooting to establish an alibi. Sure. Sure he is, Captain. Bring him in. Get out, I'm the Captain Logan, Gellhorn. You're the boss of these monkeys who've been putting the muscle on me. What's the big idea? We're simply doing a little investigating, Mr. Gellhorn. Investigating what? And why here? Randall, what's your part in this? Why have I been brought to his apartment? I'll explain, Gellhorn, if you need an explanation after... Lady, come out of that bedroom. You in that bedroom, come out. Nora. 
Think you're looking at a ghost, Gilhorn? What? What's my wife doing here? She's the last person you expected to see, isn't she? You thought she was dead. Well, I... Yes, so wipe that phony look of innocence off your face. The woman who wore your wife's red raincoat tonight was Emma Randall. Huh? She's dead. Emma's dead? Yes, Gellhorn. With three bullets in her back that you put there. I... I get it now, Captain. He mistook her for me in my raincoat. He killed my wife. Let me hand him out. Take him, boy. Take him, boy. I've got him, Captain. Before I get a pick, what's this all about? You know, Gellhorn. I'm arresting you on a charge of murder. Me? Murder? Shot of that, too. All right, boys, let's get him back to headquarters. Oh, you can't do this. You don't know what you're doing. Well, come on, Casey. This case is all sewed up. Let's get our stuff to the paper. Okay, Emmy. Uh, but I wonder. What? If this case is sewed up right. After what you and Miss Williams have told me, Casey, I can't see any doubt of that fellow Gellhorn's guiltiness. There isn't any doubt, Ethelbert, except in Casey's much too active imagination. Oh, Annie, you closed your mind like Logan. You two had so completely sold yourselves on Gellhorn's guilt before you saw him that nothing could unsay you. It mean a thing to you, for instance, when Logan's big surprise act laid an egg. Oh, that. Gellhorn didn't act as if he was looking at a ghost. When his wife stepped out of that bedroom. Well, so what? He probably got a flash of Emma Randall's face after he shot her, realized the big mistake he made, and was all prepared. Well, that's possible, yeah. You know, Mrs. Gellhorn took longer than she should have to come out of that bedroom. And then she looked more nervous than her husband. I'd like to know why. Oh, Casey, you're trying to make something out of such little things. The parts of the case fit too smoothly, Annie, as though they'd been oiled by somebody. Well, but I can't figure it out. Oh, nuts. You know, this Gellhorn business is a lot like another murder I read about. It happened over in England. Well, that's the Haslington murder, yeah. Haslington was the name of the gal who got shot. You know about it, huh? Yeah, about it. Oh, it's a famous old-timer, Ethelbert. Happened before any one of us were born. It was all news to me when I read it a couple of months ago in a detective magazine. They called it The Case of the Sable Cloak. Case of the Sable... <laughs> Yeah, detective magazine would. Hmm? Say, you know, I promised to show you those pictures I took last night that the paper didn't have space for. Yeah, I'd like to see them. Uh-huh. Here. Here's a print of the Randall living room. This is the bedroom, and here's Mrs. Patch. Mm, and will she be sore because her picture didn't make the paper? Uh, she's the woman who gave us the lead on Gellhorn. Ain't she a funny-looking old dame? Look at the... <laughs> <laughs> yes. She's a dangerous old dame. I'd... Say, wait a minute. Give me that picture I took of the bedroom. Huh? I noticed it before, but it didn't register. Look at the pillows on the bed. Well, well, they're, they're, they're just pillows. Yeah, but they're on top of the bedspread, uncovered. I don't Randall's see... alibi, Annie. What? Anne, now, wait a minute. Look at this picture of the living room. The window shades are pulled to within a few inches at the bottom. Now, that narrow space is all Mrs. Patch had to look through when she saw Randall lying on the couch. I've had pillows in the bedroom got to do... That's what I'd like to know. Ethelbert, you say you read about the Haslington murder in a recent magazine. Was the magazine True Murder Chronicles? Yeah, but it was called the case of the sable cloak. What does it? You've been a great help to me tonight, pal, and to Ferris Gellhorn. I? Come on, Annie. We're going to pay another call on Emma Randall's husband. Well, okay, Casey, but I... So would I... But what was the... Oh, they always do that to me. 
Who's that? Casey, Mr. Randall, and Miss Williams. May we come in? It's important. Uh, just a minute. Casey, how will you go? You'll soon know. Hmm. A door just closed inside there. Oh, what? I don't know why you haven't told me all you I've think. been too busy thinking to tell you. Uh, come in. Thanks, Randall. Uh, sit down, Miss Williams. Thank you. Casey. I'll rest on my feet, thank you. What, uh, what have you come to see me about? New evidence in your wife's murder. New evidence? Yeah. Gellhorn didn't kill her. What do you mean? Hey, it's, it's awful stuffy in here. You mind if I lift this shade and raise the window a little? That you're already doing. Thanks. Randall, you ever read a story called The Case of a Sable Cloak? I... No. <laughs> it's funny. It was published only a few months ago in True Murder Chronicles. And I noticed several issues of that magazine here last evening. Well, I, uh, those magazines belong to my wife. I, I never read them. I see. Well, this particular story told about a rich Englishman who fell hard for a gal named Haslington. He wanted to marry her, but he had a wife. His wife owned a sable coat. And one night he shot and killed a woman who was wearing that coat. But the woman had borrowed it from his wife. And the woman was Miss Haslington. Well, that, uh... That's, uh, like Gellhorn and, uh, and Emma. Uh-huh, yeah. The cops were pretty sure to remember the famous Haslington case if a similar murder occurred and to jump to a conclusion based upon it, see? If everything was previously arranged to point that way. Uh, don't you think so? I, uh, I don't know. Oh, sure you do. I tell you, the guy who really murdered your wife was fairly smart. He started to point suspicion toward where he wanted to fall soon after that magazine story gave him his big idea. And he figured a pretty fair alibi. He even had an excuse for a light to burn when it shouldn't have, so he could be seen in a place where he wasn't. What are you driving at? After the murder, he continued to play smart. He denied his belief in Gellhorn's guilt while constantly pointing the finger at him. And he got rid of the clothes he'd worn out in the rain. I, I looked for him while I was in your bedroom last you, you, night. You're accusing me? Because you slipped up on a little detail last night, and because tonight, the two of you made a bigger machine. Wait till I go off. Come out of that room, Mrs. Gellhorn. Come out. All right. Here I am. You shouldn't have let your murder partner come here to talk things over, Randall. You shouldn't have hidden her so clumsily before you let us in. He knows, no, he knows everything. Shut up, Jim. He wouldn't have known anything if you hadn't said that. It doesn't matter now, does it? Yes, it does. Don't make a move. Ain't you too, Miss Williams. Is that the gun your boyfriend used to kill his wife with? If it is, you'll never prove it. No. What are you going to do? The only thing to do, Jim, kill these people. They know you killed your wife and that I helped you. They can send us to the chair. You'll never get away with it. We'll tell the police you broke in here and I shot you in self-defense. Just a second, Mrs. Gellhorn. I want to go on living. And I've arranged things, so I will. How do you mean? <laughs> You've forgotten. I opened that window. Window? Mrs. Patch. She's been getting an eyeful and an earful. Well, have you known, Mrs. Casey, that I only happened to be at this window by accident? I believe you, Mrs. Patch. Give me that oh. gun, Mrs. Gellhorn. Oh, thank you. Now, you two smart killers, sit down and wait for the cops. Go on, Randall. Phone headquarters, Annie. Okay, Casey. After I phone city desk. Oh, but wait a minute. 
You still haven't told me why those pillows on the top of the bed mean We'll go over to the blue note, Annie, and I'll tell you all about it. All right. Oh, Mrs. Patch. Yes? I guarantee that your picture will be in the Express tomorrow. Food supplies still present a picture of confusion. Many of the old established brand names are scarce. Many new names appear on your grocer's shelves. Under the circumstances, how can you be sure of getting the quality you want? May I make this suggestion? First, look for a name you know. And second, and especially when in doubt, buy glass-packed food. For the glass container in itself is a guarantee of quality. Being transparent, only the best can be packed in glass. Only the best is packed in glass. Anchor glass containers and tamper-proof anchor caps, so widely used for the packaging of better foods, are products of Anchor Hawking. Our great names in glass. Now, back to Casey and Anne at the Blue Note Cafe. This uh, Randall and Mrs. Gellhorn planned the killing so they could be free to tie up with one another, huh, Casey? That's right, Ethelbert, yeah. You still haven't told me what you had on Randall when you went to his place, Casey. I didn't have anything, except the Haslington case you'd mentioned. You mean the case of the sable cloak. <laughs> okay, pal, the case of the sable cloak. I think that's a nice title. I only had that, a hunch about those bed pillars, the hope that Randall would crack up and make an admission. Yeah, what was your hunch about them bed pillars? I figured Randall might have rigged up a dummy to fool Mrs. Patch. Mm-hmm. But all she really saw were his pants and shirt stuffed with pillars. And that was all she saw, too, Ethelbert. When Randall came back after the shooting, he got out of his wet clothes, put on the dry ones that had covered the dummy, and tossed the pillows back under the bed. But a little too careless. What'd he do with the clothes he'd worn out in the rain? Well, in Gellhorn's apartment. Mm-hmm. They belonged to Gellhorn. Randall had even worn his things. Say, he and that Mrs. Gellhorn thought of almost everything. Yes, Ethelbert. Almost everything. You know, Casey, it's like my sister Edna says. Quote, anything that's not worth doing is not worth doing well. Yeah, unquote. Prime Photographer is directed by John Dietz and stars Scott's Cotsworth as Casey. It is written by Alonzo Dean Cole and is based on the fictional character of Casey, created by George Harmon Cox. Mates, these two were a bumpy ride, right? Our protagonist discovering the dangerous humanoid monsters firsthand and barely making it out thanks to his ski shoes. And the old-time radio episode, The Red Raincoat, that classic mistaken identity plotline. But with a very unique twist. Oh, what a delicious set of tales. And I hope you loved it. Now, mates, if you like what I do and think, yeah, this guy, he's doing some real good stuff, then swing on by my Patreon page and support the show. You can find it at www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. All support flies back into production, so you can rest assured it goes to the right place on this podcast. Now, I want to thank my legends, the people that support me already on Patreon. First up, the goddess, the Odin IT titan of this show, Majestic and Marvelous Maya. 
Mate, thanks to you, OTRs like this get that extra love and care that other OTRs just would never see. In fact, your input allows OTRs like this, which are really sometimes in the worst condition possible, get them repaired, tweaked, and heard by everyone. Your support means that I can push the envelope on remastering audio, so everyone is all the better for it. Thanks, Maya, for your generosity. It's greatly appreciated. Am I white to you, Warlord? Leza Bauer. Mate, thanks to you, I've been able to explore different ways of supporting authors, different means of doing so, and reaching out to OTR archivers to support them directly. Every single dollar you put into this podcast is helping someone out there, in one way or another. And for that, I'm grateful, and so are they. Thanks for being awesome. And my Ograin forces the lifeblood pumping through this podcast. I've got Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. You peeps are spectacular, and I'm lucky to have you. All of my Patreons are spectacular. And without you, this podcast would be totally different. So thank you for helping make this show what it is. If you want to email me your stories like some of you awesome people out there are doing, or your story recommendations, or hell, if you just want to say hello, email me at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com, and you'll have my ear, and I always respond. Take it easy, you legends, and I'll catch you Monday for another OTR episode. As always, till next we meet.